you so much. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to read this passage and then we're going to walk back through it. Um, This is the second message in our series called A Church on the Move. And the last time we were together, we pointed out that a church on the move is empowered for and devoted to gospel advance. And in that we saw that our church um, is to be given to advancing the gospel because, uh, and, and this church early on, the reason they were devoted to gospel advance, as we looked at, was because they were overwhelmed at Christ's continued work, that Jesus was continuing his work that he did on earth into the age of the church. And so that the, the church is not just like Jesus started this and then we have this big hiccup where everything went wrong and, we, and, and, and you have to wait till some cult comes and restores it or some guy in the Midwest that thinks he sees an angel. But, but, but the, the church continued through Acts that Jesus, and they were overwhelmed to be continued, be part of God, Christ's continued work. And secondly, we saw that they were focused on the mission that Jesus had given them. That they were focused because that mission was to be prominent. That was to be the thing. You're going to be my witnesses. It was to be the forefront. Even before worrying about prophecy. They they were talking about where you're at with prophecy. Are you going to restore the kingdom? He says, hey, God knows that. You focus on winning people to Jesus. You know what? I'm more impressed if someone says that we got all the bells and whistles and all the prophecies figured out. I am more impressed when the church has, you show me those baptismal waters sloshing and people getting saved. That's what's impressive to God and that's being on mission for Him. And then thirdly, this church is on the move by being empowered and devoted to the gospel advance because the, the, the gospel advance isn't just prominent, it's also promised that it's going to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts. It's going to cross barriers. It's going to cross socioeconomic divides. It's going to cross gender divides. It's going to cross ethnic divides. It's going to co- cross racial divides. It's going to cross these barriers, and it's going to advance. It's promised by God. And we still have that task yet, to un- yet unfinished, as we sung about. And I know whenever you introduce a new hymn... It's always kind of slow and things like that, but we'll pick it up and we'll we'll, we'll get it get it going there. Appreciate you learning that wonderful those lyrics awesome and you just chew on those and those are kind of get you some get your battery charged a little bit and then um and then thirdly they are devoted to gospel events because they're confident in Jesus' rule and return because he said he's sovereign over everything that he owns it all. And that you're going to be my witnesses and the promise that he's going to return. And so we go because he's coming. Or as Pastor McBride would say, to be a going church for a coming Christ. And so we saw that last week. And then this week we're going to look at the remaining part of the chapter. So if you would look at verses 12 to 24. This is what God's word says. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room and where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. And all these went with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, And his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture 
had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field and with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of his of all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akaladema, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And so one of the men who have accomplished us during all of this, that the Lord Jesus went in out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forth two. Joseph called Barsabas, who's also called Justice and and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside and go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and may the Spirit of God now take up his sword and do his work. I don't know if any of y'all are baseball fans. Um, and how many of you played outfield in baseball? Or played in outfield? Okay. Um, I remember in elementary, I was, I was running over at the VA this week, and I was running by the um, uh, lower fields there, and I was trying to think of anything but how hot it was and how bad my feet hurt. And so I was remembering playing Little League baseball on those fields and uh, playing in the outfield. And they try to tell you that, oh, we put the fast guys in the outfield. Well, we all knew. That was the guys that either their son wanted to play shortstop or you weren't good enough to play shortstop, so they stuck you in the outfield. And so that's kind of been my lot in life. And then I really didn't play. I, I ran track and stuff in, um, in high school, so I didn't play baseball. But um, I love um, softball. And, and lest we bring up any memories or rivalries of church softball leagues, I'll... Um, uh, when I when I was a grad assistant down in, I was thinking about Greenville with the Serms here, um, they uh, the the university there had like uh, a bunch of employees and they had a summer softball league and departments would play departments and so I played in the summer softball league and the guy who was the coach of our particular team he was I thought he was really old at the time he's probably young but um, he. Um, he, he had this rule, I think, and I, he said, so we showed up for our first practice, and he said, all right, if you're under 30, if you're over 30, you get to play in the infield because we don't want to run. If you're under 30, go to the outfield. So I, at the time, went to the outfield, and I think played center field or something like that. But you know, when you play in the outfield, you do a lot of what I would call active waiting, you ever watch a baseball game? I know Carol's, Carol, Carol's here. Carol watches a lot of baseball games um, at, with the Bucks up in Pittsburgh. And, and, and if you watch, sometimes you're like, those guys in the outfield have to be so bored because they, they stand there. They don't get to do anything, but they've got to be, like, ready all the time. And, like, three hours go by, and they don't get to touch the ball other than before the inning, right? 
but are they just being passive and hanging out? I mean, there's some of you kids that, folk parents that put your kids in t-ball. That's what they do. They go sit out there and they play in the grass and things like that, and, or maybe fall soccer or something like that. Um, but no, they're actively waiting. Um, Mrs. Uh, Saab here is our new ECS girls volleyball coach, and we went Friday night and watched the girls play a little bit. And when they're waiting on the serve, they're there and they're ready and they're actively waiting. You're like, well, they're just standing there. No, they're ready. They're thinking bump, set, spike, dig it, dig it, yeah, or something like that, right? And, um, I mean, and they're, they're, they're ready for it. And in some ways, when we look at this passage, we're looking at the church before the church. The church technically begins in chapter 2 at Pentecost. But we see this um, pre-Pentecost, these days of waiting, that this church is obeying these, the apostles and those following, these 120. Jesus has told them, wait, stay in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses after you have the power of the Holy Spirit upon you. And so they're being obedient to the Lord and they're waiting. But they're not just passively waiting. They're actively waiting. They're preparing for God to move. And this, I think, is a picture for us of what this church is doing before God moved and empowered them at Pentecost. But it's also a forerunner of revival for us. What is a church to do? What are we to do as individuals when we're waiting on God? You ever been there? That you know that there's a next step for your family or maybe you with your job or maybe you with your family or your relationships or education-wise or move or housing or residence or um, even your involvement in church or, or what God's going to do with our church. And you're kind of waiting on God to move. So what do you do? Do you just binge watch on Netflix until you're told what to do? You just sit there? No, you're actively involved. And I think this passage shows us this pattern of the early church that it needs to be our pattern as well as we wait for God to move. So a, a church on the move is actively waiting for God's plan. That's the, that's the big idea for today. That a church on the move is actively waiting for God's plan. Now, we're, we're often not active when we're preparing for God to move or, or we find ourselves not giving ourselves to the priorities of the early church here. We're just kind of, God, will you just show me what the next step is? Am I supposed to take this job or that job? Or, God, are you going to move us here? Or are you finally going to, people going to show up here, new people at the church? Or what are you going to do? What are you going to do with, with, with location and space and ministries and people and personnel? What, what are you going to do this, God? And what do we do? And we're often very hesitant, but I think this passage gives us that a church on the move is to be actively waiting on God's plan. What's next? Preparing for God to move. And so I'm going to see three things in the text here that the church, how they were actively waiting on God's plan. The first one is in verses 12 to 14, that they were actively waiting on God's plan by being continually devoted to prayer. Just click, there you go, to prayer. Continually devoted to prayer. Now see here in verse 12, it says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Now a Sabbath day's journey was about 2,000 cubits or something like that. And, and basically they weren't supposed to travel much on the Sabbath. And so there was, that wasn't spelled out exactly in the Old Testament, but they had their own commentaries and with the rabbis and what's called the Mishnah that told them that it had to be only a certain amount of time that they could travel this far um, on a Sabbath day. So they're at the Mount of Olives. Where Jesus has ascended, 
And they travel back into Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, back in, in a Sabbath day's journey. And it says there that they came in, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, what is this upper room? Um, now they sometimes met at the temple. Luke told us in his first book, in the Gospel of Luke, he told us that they met in the temple sometimes. And um, But that they, this is the room that, uh, it's, it's, there's a little bit of debate about this, but uh, I tend to think that it's the same upper room that they had met with Jesus in earlier for the Last Supper and also when we were going through John, all those Olivet discourses or the upper room discourses when Jesus was saying, I'm praying for you this and I'm praying these high priestly prayers for you. Um, basically, in that day, um, you know, there weren't microtels and Holiday Inn Expresses, right? People would rent out rooms. So often people would have the roof of their house as a place of open area, kind of a gathering area. They go up to that. And especially at times like Passover or Pentecost when there are big feasts in towns, people would, would rent out rooms. Um, you know, kind of like a bed and breakfast or kind of a, and some, and we, we've kind of lo- lost a lot of history and some of that culture. It, it's funny how some things culturally come back. Um, that the, the, the website, Airbnb, air bed and breakfast, that that's kind of the big thing now. Has anyone ever done that? Stayed in that one of, one of those? Uh, it usually takes us a while. I see a lot of my friends on Facebook in any way when they travel or go on vacation, they'll go stay at one of these where someone rents out a room and it's kind of like, and it's, so it's a little similar idea to what's going on here. Um, and so now if, if it is the same upper room that they stayed in with Jesus, then remember Jesus sent them and said, there'd be someone that says, Hey, we have a guest room and that would be God providentially had that in mind where they went and stayed. So it's probably a rented facility. And, and it may have possibly been in a uh, more of a, a upscale area of town because it was evidently a large upper room uh, that was able to get at least 120 people in it. And they were staying there. And so, um, and so um, that, that's the upper room. Now, I really think that when we go through Acts, there's how we interpret the Bible is important. Last week we talked a little bit about reading Acts. Sometimes what's, descri- what's God describing happened and what's he prescribing is supposed to be what the church does forever um, and for, through, through, throughout the rest of the church age, or as Randy Travis would say, forever and ever, amen. Um, that, that how, how are we supposed to know that? And so we've got to be careful that when there's just something mentioned that might be a cultural thing, that we don't read too much into that. And so I don't think we ought to do that too much with what the upper room is. This culture, the culture, the, the cultural world has changed, and we don't tend, uh, we don't want to reverse contextualize. We don't want to take our culture and force something onto the text that's not there or a modern idea, uh, or even if we're looking for a way to knee jerk and swing the pendulum away from what the church does now. Um, someone said, "Don't tear a fence down until you know why it was put up." You know. Um, so the truth is that the early church met in many different locations. They met in the temple in Acts chapter 2. They met by the river in Acts chapter 16. They met in the school of Tyrrhenius uh, in Acts chapter 19. And in James chapter 2, it seems like they met in a synagogue type place. So the location of where the church meets is not what's important. Because the church is not the building. The church is the people. They are the assembly. Just like your home, your your home is where your family is. Not necessarily when you move, it doesn't mean you left home. You just created a new house. Your new house is where your your home is. Um, and and you know, so some people would make a big deal of whether they're meeting in a house or whether they meet in a building or whether it's rented or whether it's not rented or whether they own it or not and whether there's overhead and costs and involved in the building. 
whether it's in a small group in someone's house or whether that small group's meeting in a classroom on Sunday morning and you call it a Sunday school class or whatever, it doesn't matter. Because you know what? A house is a building. And a church building is a building. And a rented facility is a building. And you know what? An old church building has upkeep and lights to pay for and carpet to vacuum and toilets to clean and things like that. And you know what a house does? It has the same stuff. And those of you that have hosted small groups or you have kids, you know exactly what that's like. Some, some people say, well, if we just met everybody's houses, then we wouldn't have overhead. Yes, you would. All those homeowners have lots of overhead. Um, it, there's still the same thing. And then, um, so we need to, I, I think we need to not make a big deal that the church is the people, not the building. Um, and then it names several of the apostles. And when they had entered this upper room, they went in, verse 13, and they were staying and it names them. Peter, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, and it goes on. It names these individual apostles. And it tells us what they're given to, the primary activity in this year. And then later on it tells us that Peter gets up and says something. And, and Peter, he's not like the authority of the apostles, but he does tend to be the big mouth and the mouthpiece. And that's fine. Every group has one like that. Excuse me. Um, and then it says that they're there praying also with the women. And it names Jesus' mother and other women there. And So who were these ladies that were there? Um, they were probably the female disciples, uh, disciples that were followers of Jesus. Um, back in Luke, and his, uh, he, had, he had mentioned that there were female disciple followers of Jesus that helped fund financially his ministry, Jesus' ministry. So they were probably some of them would be there. Um, I think that some of the wives of the apostles were there. And we know, I mean, uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, that Paul said that, you know, am I not able to lead a, about a believing wife like the other apostles? So if they had wives and, you know, they, I mean, you know, I mean, if Peter had a mother-in-law, that means you usually have a wife if you have a mother-in-law. And um, that'd be really bad to have a mother-in-law without a wife. Um, <laughs> and uh, I can't look over on this side of the room. There's daggers coming at me. Um, anyway, um, anyhow, um, so maybe some of the wives of the um, apostles were there. It does tell us that Mary was there. But what the important thing for us to see here is that the primary activity is that they're praying. So Mary is here, and it says, in the brothers of Jesus. So if Jesus had brothers, they were not all given by incarnation. So this this fabrication of a perpetual virginity of Mary is not true. He, she had other children. And so he had four brothers, James and Jude. We know James that became a leader in the church in Jerusalem and wrote the, the book of James. And then Jude, the, the short letter of Jude that we have in our Bible, and Simon and Joses. Um, those are the brothers, the half-brothers of Jesus. But verse 14 gives us this summary statement of what they did in this upper room. It says that they were, all these with one accord, were devoting themselves, and the text that idea would have that they continually are devoting, that they're repeated, that they're steadfastly staying themselves to prayer together. Corporate prayer was an important part of their waiting. They were continually devoted to prayer. They're actively waiting on God to move. And so they were anticipating the promised gift of the Spirit. But that time that they were waiting, and there's probably 10 days here that they're waiting, they're praying. This is a long prayer meeting. So one could say, as other preachers have, that the New Testament church was birthed out of a prayer meeting. Prayer is such an important thing. 
Um, that they To have effective witness for Jesus, they needed to have the power of the Holy Spirit. But that spiritual empowerment of the Holy Spirit often comes when we're waiting in prayer. They're united in expectant prayer, waiting on God to move. The unity of them being united is nothing short of a miracle in and of itself. So I want you to think about the makeup of just these apostles and the people that are with the, the women that are there, the brothers of the half brothers of Jesus, and maybe Mary Magdalene and others that would have been there as well. I want you to think of the, the, that core group. Now we know after the ascent, after the ascension, Jesus appeared at least to 500 at one time, and so maybe this is the core group of that 120. You know, so don't be sh- don't be surprised when not everybody shows up for the prayer meeting, right? They didn't have that then, right? 500, 120. Um, in this group, think about the makeup of this group. There are some very strong-willed men. There's some alpha types in here that don't normally get along. They butt heads a lot, right? But they're there united continually in prayer. The same disciples that were arguing with each other about who was going to have the best seats in the kingdom, remember? Arguing about who's going to have the best seats in the kingdom that refused to wash one another's feet when they came to the upper room for the Last Supper, they're here united in prayer. You know, praying together has a way of uniting people in ways that other, other ways don't. If, you have, if you're having a, a fight with somebody, and the, the best way to calm that down often is to pray for them and pray with them. Um, that's why I encourage couples to pray together. Because it's really hard to fight when you're praying, you know. Jamie prays imprecatory prayers for me sometimes, I think, but, but she prays for me, right? And um, so th- th- there's and, and think, so Jesus' brothers are there united in this prayer meeting. That's a miracle to itself because they didn't even believe he was the Messiah until after the, re- after the resurrection. They're there. His mother's there. You know, she is praying to her Lord. They're not praying through Mary. The, the, she's praying there with them. These women and these men don't have a lot in common. So there are women that are of good reputation. There are also women here that are not of good reputation. If you look back in Magdalene's past and things like that. And they are all together. And you know what, folks? That's what church is. You have tax collectors that become disciples. You have Jewish zealots that are part of the disciples. And they're united in prayer. You know what this looks like in our day? It means you have different races and ethnicities worshiping together. You have people from the good part of town and the bad part of town worshiping together. You have people that vote this way and people that vote this way all work, all worshiping together. And that's what church is. And the unity of it is we've seen in just this miracle that they're here in one mind. And evidently they all drove the same type of car. They're all in one accord, right? Um... That's a joke. They're together. They're bound together, praying. With one accord, they're devoting themselves to praying together. The main activity of this upper room is prayer. You could say that they are persistent, or literally they stuck to praying. They're stuck to it. You know, this is really where a lot of power of the church comes from, is how we pray together. There's been a lot of talk in the past week or two about the Civil War era, and even in our town, whether the statue on downtown Clarksburg ought to remain there or come down or not, those things like that, across our country, uh, those things. And sometimes we forget that when we look back on an era 
of history that time was still happening in other parts of the world as well. And so, to go back to the Civil War era in this country, on the other side of the pond, in the, there was a Baptist preacher. He was kind of overweight, pretty reformed, named Charles Spurgeon. And, and Spurgeon, the South, Virginia, which we would have been part of Virginia then, um, hated Spurgeon. You know why? Spurgeon preached against slavery. And he preached. He he supported abolition. And they, you know, and this is funny because you think of all the Southern preachers today that are quoting Spurgeon in their sermons. That during the 1860s there were bonfires of Spurgeon's books in the South. They did not. They called him the Prince of Bonfires instead of the Prince of Preachers. Um, but in London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, was going on the largest assembly of protestants probably in history up to that point seven thousand people at a time were gathering to hear this man preach and there was a group of men that arranged to come visit and find out what the power of the metropolitan tabernacle was and so they came and they planned ahead of time and they set up an appointment with mr spurgeon before the service and they asked him what is the secret of the great metropolitan tabernacle's success so Spurgeon took them and said, let me show you. And he took them down two flights of steps into the basement. What he called the heating plant. We might call it the boiler room. And he opened the door. And in that room there were 200 men praying for the service. Praying for the preaching of God's word. Praying for souls to come to know the Lord. Praying for the advancement of the gospel. And he had it strategically located underneath where the pulpit was so that, that the prayers would have to go through the pulpit to get to heaven and he'd be caught in the middle. And, um, and he opened the door and he told them and they saw those 200 men praying and he said, that's where the power is. The early church's power was in this priority of prayer as well. Their priority of prayer should be our priority of prayer. And you could say that the church was, as I said earlier, birthed out of this prayer meeting. I want you to note who was leading this prayer. Who were the first ones that were together with this prayer? The 12, or the 11, the men. Prayer wasn't something that was relegated just to the women to do, as often is the case in our, our culture. It's often the ladies that are having the prayer times and the prayer meetings and things like that. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for the ladies that gather in our upper room here and pray before our services should be an indictment on some men. Every Sunday, you're welcome before the services to go up there and pray. I want to encourage you to do that. Um, if you have time after the service, just to spend time. It doesn't have to be in that room. It can be anywhere. Um, and it lists their names. If we listed the names of the people that show up at a night of prayer or a prayer time, would your name be listed? So I want to encourage you to pray throughout the week pray in your small group when you get together in a small group to pray for one another and pray together as you're able to come before services or after services to be there in prayer together when we have a night of prayer on a sunday evening once a quarter to be there the early church devoted themselves to praying together and oh i wish i could emphasize how important that is to us waiting on god and prayer are often related activities in the scriptures so and you might in your own life or us as a church, 
while you're waiting on God to move, pray. Be continually devoted to prayer. And then we come to verse 15, and we see that not only were they continually devoted to prayer, but secondly, they were concerned to be structured by the Scriptures. So Peter gets up here, and he says that, um, that they need to replace Judas. And he gives some... Uh, he, he talks about some of the passages from the Psalms and the things in the Old Testament about uh, how they need to replace him. And so um, they're concerned of, to be structured by the Scripture. We're going to click number two on there, guys, up there. And uh, it can be structured by the Scripture. And so um, they're concerned for this. There's no superstars in this kingdom. Everybody can be replaced. Now, the other thing I want you to note here, I think this is actually a, a testimony to the, the authority of the Bible, that he inter- and, and how even how Peter used the Bible, that he used the Bible to interpret the Bible. He interpreted the new with the old and the old with the new. And then he also is very careful um, that, I th- and I think this is also a fulfillment of David's psalm, which is a testimony of the authority of the Bible. But one of the other things I think is neat, not only for the authority of the Bible and the... Um, just how, but just how authentic the church was and how we need to be a little bit this way as well. That the report of what was going on in the church wasn't all peaches and cream. You don't usually start talking about your new organization by telling you about how the, the bad employee you had that messed up. You don't usually start off talking about your church when you talk about the people that really were jerked to the visitors and that's why they didn't come back. But that's how the early church does. They said, we had this one guy who betrayed and left. And we need to replace him. You see this idea of church discipline and involvement here, the congregation coming into play here, or even before the church's birth at Pentecost. Modern Christians would like to just talk about the success of the church and all the numbers and not the negatives. And, um, and, but sometimes the failures of the church is what need to be aired in order for us to grow. And it's also a contrast between those that backslide and those that continue on in their apostasy unrepentant. Because you think of the one who is saying we need to replace Judas. It was Peter, who also denied the Lord. But Judas goes out and he, or, Jude, or Peter, repents. And he's restored by the Lord at, at, the, at the sea after the resurrection. Judas just says that he's sorrowful. He's, he's basically sorry he got caught. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. There's a lot of people out there struggling with guilt. And there's a lot of things that guilt affects our psyche, affects us physically. There's a lot of people out in the world that are, feel guilt of their sin. They wouldn't call it their sin, but there's a guilt that they have. They're always fighting against something. Um, but there's a big difference between those that have remorse and those that repent. And we see that contrast with Peter and Judas here. And so... And, and so he says, hey, we, we need to replace him. And then he gives the qualifications or the job qualifications of who would replace Judas here as one of the apostles. And it says that they need to be have been with them. He gives the two bookends of how they need to be with the Lord. They need to be there from the baptism of John unto the ascension. Now, the fact that this person had to be there with them from the baptism of John to the ascension shows us that these unique qualifications mean that the replacement of the apostles show that this was unique to this singular office in this singular generation. I want you to let that sink in. If you hear about a church or someone comes and tells you that they have an apostle or are an apostle, 
They are lying. Okay? Um, the apostles ended. Here, we also see Paul and Barnabas called apostles in Acts 14. And James, who's here with them, he also has that from him. But, but, but it is not, does not continue on. So don't trust anyone who says they're an apostle or their church has an apostle. One of my biggest concerns with the modern charismatic movement that didn't start until the 20th century, by the way, um, is not the tongues. We're going to talk about tongues next week. So if you want to come back, we're going to talk about tongues. Okay. Um, My concern is not the the tongues. I mean, that's that's an important thing we need to define biblically and things well. But the more important thing is what they do with prophecy and apostles. Because the scriptures are pretty clear here for us that apostles end at this time. And that's an important thing for us to note here. And so he needs to be replaced. And why does he need to be replaced? Well, it doesn't really tell us exactly, but Peter points out these Old Testament texts of the prophecy that he needs to be replaced. So we're going to take it that he's interpreting it right. To complete their number, to make it 12. Um, it might be to because it corresponds with the 12 tribes of Israel and to make it that, you know, kind of like the church is part of Israel. We see that in the Bride of Christ, the 12 pillars, 12 stones of the church in, the, in Israel together in Revelation. We see that with the Bride. Um, but I think the important thing to, for us to note is that they based their structure and what they did upon the Bible. And while we're waiting on God to move, when you're waiting on God to make a decision, when you, in your own life, for us as a church, we need to be concerned that we're structured by the Scriptures. So important that we let the text drive how we structure our church, what we call different groups of servants, what we call all these different things. We, it's so important that we let the Bible drive us. Um, when you have a difficult decision to make, base it on the Bible. When it seems like there's not a clear decision to make, pick a principle, the closest command you have from the Bible, and follow it. While you're waiting, be actively being concerned to be structured by the Scriptures. And then thirdly, a church that's actively waiting on God's plan is going to be third careful to yield the final say to jesus we're going to get that one up there to yield the final say to G, the final decision to jesus verse 24 so they're deciding who, who's going to replace judas and they put forth two guys joseph and matthias and we don't really see anything else about them the rest of the in the rest of the bible uh eusebius later on a few centuries later well actually a few decades later would tell us that um that one of them ended up being uh, buried in Germany, that one would have been uh, martyred, that one, uh, for, for the being witness, they were forced to drink poison. Um, but we don't know from the Bible what they did or things, but they were just known there. There's no superstars in God's kingdom. But it does tell us how they made the decision. So verse 24 says this, and they prayed, so they put forth these through. Now notice the, the, the assembly here puts forth these two. And when they prayed, they said, You, Lord, who know the heart of all, show us which one of these you have chosen. They yield the final say to the Lord. Now, the Lord here is, is, is the Lord Jesus. He is it's His church. He's the head of His church. They, they yield the final say to the Lord. They yield that final decision. Jesus still rules over the affairs of His church. Now, we need to keep this in mind with every decision that we make. Now, the way they did this was they cast lots. They put lots in, they cast lots. And this is, again, unique to this situation. It's not telling us that we're supposed to just keep, a, keep a, a, you know, some dice with us every time we go somewhere. 
Should I witness to this person or this person? All right, six or seven, here we go. You know, no, we, we don't do that. This is before they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that would rule and give them direction and, and make, help them make. But after this, from this point on, we see the congregation, the apostles, and the elders making the decisions. By the power of the Spirit and wisdom of the Spirit, that's where you see going on. That the group of elders would get together to make a decision, that the congregation as a whole would get together and make a decision, and that's it. Um, but at this point, they cast lots for it, kind of like putting marks on a stone, throwing them in. And um, and so what they're doing here is, is um, conventional with Old Testament wisdom. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So they're leaning this out on the Lord to let the Lord make the decision. And the lesson for us is this. There are many details of church life and in your own personal life that there's not like an exact thing God told you to do and there's some latitude. You know, there's some latitude on what we do in church. Um, now, we need to be careful we don't take latitude where the Bible actually does speak. Now, we're we're going to be in big trouble there. And if we focused on what the Bible does get, tell us, most, most of our other problems would go away. But the principle is that we don't force our plans onto God. We don't ask God just to rubber stamp our, pl- his pl- our plans. And you know, when they pray, they're praying and they're kind of like saying, as Jesus did, when Jesus says, if it be possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus modeled this, that when they came to prayer, when they were in this prayer time, they weren't just asking God to do what they said. They left the final decision to the Lord, if the Lord wills. James said this again. If the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. You know what, though? Myself included. If most of our prayers were recorded, they don't have this type of attitude. Most of the time when we pray, most of the time when someone requests a prayer request, we basically want God to do what we want Him to do. Have you ever heard of someone, I'm going into surgery, pray that I don't come out, Pray that it's really hard and I have complications in recovery. Pray that they don't get it done what they wanted to or pray that it's worse than they expected. No. Will you pray that it goes quickly and that it's, I heal quick and that we get all the money we need and that I'm healthy forever and that there's no problems in life? And God wants us to bring our requests and He doesn't want us to have martyrs complexes and just pray for you know all the bad things to happen to us. But I think there is a sense that, Lord, if it's Your will... Or, Lord, when Paul would pray, would you take this thorn in the flesh from me? But when you don't, I'm going to recognize and learn that your grace is sufficient through it. If it's God's will. That when we pray, when we bring our requests to God, we're kind of bringing them with our hands a little open. That we're not holding on to it. God, you make the final say. We ask with open hands. And you know what, guys and girls, ladies, gentlemen? This is the polar opposite of the name it and claim it prosperity gospel. Because that's like, you just believe long enough and you just claim it and you, God's going to give us that mountain and God's going to give me that victory over that cancer or that debt. Or you just pray it through and God's going to do it. That's not the way the early church viewed it. God, you make this decision. You make the final say for us. Yield the final decision to the Lord. And there are many things 
that God's already given us Jesus' opinion on through his word that we don't need to decide. You know, a lot of our decisions are already made for us. We don't even have to pray about it. My favorite movie is Sheffy. And I that one part where he's giving away his horse, Gideon. And, and, and he's like, I need to pray about this. And he's like, oh, there's nothing to pray for. I'm supposed to give it to this guy. And there's some things that, you know, I, 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 I served in a ministry one time. And there was a situation, it wasn't here. Um, th- there was a situation in the church where they, um, there was a, 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 someone in the church, I'm trying to word this carefully. Um, there was someone in the church that was involved in unrepentant serial adultery. Okay, I'll put it that way. They were a serial adulterer and were unrepentant about it. And they had their reasons here or there. And when it came to a church discipline situation, they were actually putting it to the church for a vote. And one side presented a case and the other side presented a case of whether this lady was guilty or not. Now, it was known she was guilty and she was unrepentant about it. And I would say... Why would the church of Jesus Christ need to vote to decide whether adultery is sin or not? He already told us that. There's nothing to vote on. We don't need to vote of whether Jesus is going to be this, the, the head of this church. It is. We have nothing to vote on. Um, Jesus gets the final say. Um, Jesus' will should be the final say in every decision you make personally, financially, with your family, or that we make for about the future direction of Emmanuel Baptist Church corporately. It's very important that we pray with open hands. And this is a good model for us to take when we, if you have a decision to make. This, pray, look to Scripture, yield to God's will. These three points. Pray, look to Scripture, yield to God's will. You have a big decision about finances, or maybe a house, or maybe a job opportunity, or, or educational opportunity, or something like that. Pray, look to Scripture, Yield to God's will. A good model for us to follow. So we long to have power as a church. We long to have joy and abilities. And and the joy that comes that this early church has is they're praying together and they're happy and they're seeing God work on the move. A church on the move. We long to be like this church on the move. We want, our, we want that for our individual lives. We want to be blessed. We want to have that life abundantly that Jesus talked about in our families and our marriages. Well, how can we get that? Well, there's a little boy that asks his grandpa to teach him about the wind. And the grandpa said, I can't explain the wind to you, but I can show you how to raise the sails. And where God moves and how the Spirit works in His church <clears throat> is beyond our comprehension, but I believe this passage is giving us the attitude that this early church had while they were waiting on the fullness of the Spirit at Pentecost to be this forerunner of the revival that they would have. It shows us how to raise the sails of activity while we're waiting on God's plan to move. And that is to be devoted to prayer, to be structured by the Scriptures, and yield the final say to Jesus. So you might need a little spiritual warm-up. You know, when you're sitting at coffee at Denny's or IHOP or someplace and they come over and kind of warm your coffee up, you know, and just, you put a little more in, it warms it up, right? And before you know it, you have no idea that you've drank five cups of coffee because you've been talking so long and you, you got the jitters the rest of the day. And um, But maybe you need a spiritual warm-up. Be devoted to prayer. Be concerned to be structured by the Scriptures. Be careful to yield the final say to Jesus. This is the ways we warm up spiritually. So these 10 days of waiting pre-Pentecost for the church, preparing for God to move, 
this forerunner revival, this pattern, I think, is something that we can follow as we're waiting on God's plan, to be actively waiting on God to move by being committed to prayer, concerned about Scripture, and that we're yielding this final, careful, if your will. It's God's will. It's Jesus' will. What you want with this church. It's not my church. It's your church. It's not, for our, it's not our church. It's not Deacon's church. It's not Sunday school teaching. It's not the pastor's church. It's Jesus, and he gets the final say. And in the same way with your family. Uh, is, is it all right if Jesus has a final say in which car you buy? Is it okay? Is it okay if Jesus has a final say in what you wear? Um, now, he's not going to say wear this and not this. He's going to give you some, you know, use that gray matter between the two ears for something, right? But there's some principles he gave, right? Um, and we can yield the final say to him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for this passage.